Um, hi, this is Kevin Richards from the University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, uh, bringing you another segment of Going Behind the Research. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of hosting uh, Dr. Justin Hagel from Old Dominion University, who's going to be talking with us about um, a, an article that he co-authored titled Absent, Incapable, and Quote-Unquote Normal, Understanding the Inclusiveness of Visually Impaired Students' Experiences in Integrated Physical Education. Before we turn it over to Dr. Hagel and get started, uh, just as a quick reminder, um, rather than providing a forum to discuss research that is conducted in health and physical education, the going behind the research segment focuses on telling the stories that surround research um, we read in scholarly journals. Globally, the segment aims to humanize research by providing a forum uh, to discuss the motives that draw researchers towards topics and studies, challenges and successes experienced along the way, and lessons learned that transcend individual journal publications and impact future research decisions. Each episode uh, will feature an interview with one or more members of an authorship team to discuss the stories behind a selected publication. Um, we'll begin with a, uh, a brief introduction to the, to the study, and then after that we follow a common um, set of questions with plenty of uh, space and time to get off track and talk about things that are interesting to us rather than um, what's actually in the article. Uh, so, so with that kind of quick uh, overview, um, uh, Justin, it's really, uh, really a pleasure to have you uh, on today. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for the invitation. Um, this paper, you know, is is a, a unique one for me for a couple of different reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and with, with this paper, it's not just myself, it's uh, our research team here at Old Dominion University, which includes three of our APE doctoral scholars that are all funded on that, that fancy U.S. Department of Ed grant that we've got, um, as, and their names are Lindsay, Lindsay and Allie, and then uh, my partner in crime here, Shihai Drew, is also part of this authorship team. Um, and this, this study, I think I need to say this too, just for... Uh, disclosure reasons, but this was the first out of a series of papers that are coming out of a Spencer Foundation grant that we got. And the entire uh, purpose of that grant is to further explore how visually impaired and blind people experience the inclusiveness of PE or potential inclusiveness. Um, and awesome. we take, yeah, we take inclusion and we don't think of it as just a space, but more of a feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's something that I hope that we'll be able to get into a bit more as we go through. I know that, um, that, that you and your team have a, have a somewhat innovative uh, or forward facing, let's say, uh, perspective on inclusion. Um, so, so, you know, along those lines, before we get behind the research, um, if you could just start off by giving us kind of a brief overview of the study, you know, with a reminder that we always link the article in the show notes from today's episode for anybody who's interested in reading more. Yeah, for sure. So this paper, we talked to 22 visually impaired or blind youth. They were 12 to 17 years old. Uh, we had them do a couple of other data collections as well through like written responses that were all dropped into Qualtrics. Um, and essentially, we talked to them about uh, whether they had a sense of belonging, value, and acceptance within PE. And um, after analyzing the data, uh, those three words in our title are representative of our uh, three themes, and the themes really depicted how the kids thought other people saw them within PE, uh, which was kind of an interesting take on, on the themes. And so the first one was the absent person where they weren't actually, 
even though they were enrolled in integrated classes. They weren't actually present within those classes. A lot of times they were told to, to essentially go somewhere else so that they weren't within this setting. Um, the second one, the incapable person, was um, the kids talking about being seen as unable to participate by their peers. A lot of times it was because of the way in which like activities were structured or being dumped into like unaccommodating spaces. And the last one, the quote unquote normal person um, described instances where the participants were talking about how important it was for them to feel normal. And for some of the kids, especially the kids with like less significant um, impairments, they did feel normal because they weren't treated any differently. Um, but that was really seldom. For the most part, it was kids talking about that desire to feel normal, but how that feeling wasn't available to them because of all the accommodations or modifications that teachers mm. kind of haphazardly make in order to attempt to make them more integrated into the class. Yeah, yeah, super interesting stuff. Um, and and what 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 attracts me to this article in particular is that that I feel you know, and I'm a bit of an outsider, so kick me in the butt and tell me I'm wrong where I am. But but from from my vantage point um, as an outsider to the world of adaptive physical education, I've seen a lot of research historically kind of silence the voices of of children with disabilities, individuals with disabilities, and instead you know, look, look at proxies like parents or, or caregivers or, or teachers to kind of comment on their experiences. And, and I think a lot of times there are some really well-meaning adults who make decisions um, on the behalf of children, you know, in general, but children with disabilities more specifically, um, uh, you know, really without taking their voices or perspectives into account. So it's interesting to see where you know, where children or young people are able to kind of pick out holes or problems with the way that adults have structured things for them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're saying is is accurate. I mean, we've been talking to our, our research team has been talking to disabled people about their PE experiences for a few years now. This is one of the main main focuses of what we're doing. But but I, I, I should say and I will say it's far more common in other countries like in Canada, like Nancy Spencer has been talking to disabled kids about their experiences uh, for quite a while. Uh, one of my favorite papers she wrote was published back in 2010 in APAC. Um, there's a, a good deal of people in the UK who've been uh, talking to disabled people like Janine Coates or Anthony Marr. And, and then uh, even in Germany where Martin Vesey is doing the same type of work or in Brazil where uh, Malu Alves is doing very similar work. So the work is, it, it exists out there. Um, but I do think that perhaps particularly in the US, perhaps it's not as not as well done as like you were saying, talking to teachers or talking to paraprofessionals or parents about like their views. And, you know, there's nothing to say these views aren't important. But um, for me personally, um, I care a lot less about like how teachers feel about what they're doing um, than how kids feel about what they're experiencing that's influenced by what teachers are doing. Yep. Um, I think of it like, you know, like Yelp and and uh, those websites, right? Like you wouldn't go to a restaurant and ask the chef to uh, review their food and then make your decisions based on the chef's review, right? It just seems kind of like a kind of a silly way to go. But that's what we do with education a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, really, really cool and interesting um, to, to kind of think about uh, as we as we uh, jump in and get behind this, this study. Uh, so along those lines, let's start broad. Um, you know, you're talking, I think, specifically about the, the voices of, of young people 
uh, or, or individuals with disabilities um, being the kind of broad stroke research topic here. Um, you know, what, what got you into this uh, area and how does this study fit into your broader line of inquiry? Man, that's a good question. I don't, I don't really know how we start. Like, I can't pinpoint when we started or why we started to do this type of work. Um, I know the first time we started interviewing disabled people about their experiences was for a paper that ended up in RQ back in like 2017. Um, but I couldn't tell you the reason why that shift happened because my training wasn't in qualitative methods. My training was largely in like behaviorism and single subject designs. But I think that there were questions that, you know, we just developed that we were interested in. And so we kind of just shifted our interests and moved a bit differently into the research. This particular study um, came about in this like suite of studies that's going to come out, um, came about because when we were doing the initial work, we were largely interviewing adults and asking them to reflect back about what PE was like for them. And we got like some really interesting criticism, like, you know, if you're interviewing a 30 year old, how does that represent what's happening today? And people were telling me we're making tons of progress. Oh, things have changed so much since, I don't know, 2010 or whatever it might've been. And so like the natural progression for us was to engage more with kids and talk more to them about what's happening today. And, and this is, we've done it now with, with this study where we talked to blind and visually impaired kids. We've also done studies where we talked to autistic kids or like Katie Holland's dissertation, she talked to kids with orthopedic impairments. And so we've kind of been spreading out to for different impairments and such. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, and uh, you mentioned at the onset, and, and then again there um, a minute ago, that this that the broader kind of suite of studies that that you're working off of, this one included, um, were, were were funded through a Spencer Foundation grant. And so, um, you know, getting foundation grants isn't something that everybody in our fields um, are, are able to do. Um, Spencer Foundation grants are are, are pretty coveted. Um, you know, they have a pretty high rejection rate. Uh, so, so um, I wonder. So first of all, congratulations on that achievement. Uh, but but second, I wonder if you could kind of tell us a little bit of the story behind how that how that grant came to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we actually submitted it. This is the second time we've submitted. It's the small research grants through Spencer, um, and we submitted the year before. And the submission was far more complex. Like we we were more theoretically driven, and we thought like. Let's let's overdo everything. And we got some interesting feedback. And some of the feedback essentially told us, like, it seems like you can do this, but it seems overly complex and perhaps impossible to do within the parameters of this particular foundation grant. And, and so we actually took a step back and we simplified what we were doing. And we were more thorough with our approach within the grant application. Um, and one of the other things we did, which I think helped, is we outlined each of the prior studies we had previously done in this area of inquiry. And I think that really demonstrated to the foundation and to the reviewers that like, we're not just some random people who are gonna go talk yep. to some blind and visually impaired kids. Like, this is what we do. We've done this quite a bit. Um, and so I, my guess is simplifying things as well as um, showing that we can do this without very, like, I don't think there's any question that, that we're the people to do this. I think yep. that helps quite a bit. Um, I'm also happy to like, I'm very much of the mind that I should be sharing anything I've done. So if people have interest in like reading an application, then I'm happy to share it, provide tips and stuff. Not that my tips are useful, but happy to share them. No, yeah, but that's uh, that can be really helpful. I, I know for for a lot of us, myself included, 
Um, you know, our, our doctoral training didn't, didn't focus as much on grant procurement as maybe our jobs are requiring that we, that we do now. That was a big shift for me coming to the University of Illinois. And so I'm sure that others would really benefit from that. I, I might hit you up for that, actually. I've submitted a few Spencer Foundation grants and, and have never been successful. Um, so so maybe, uh, maybe I'm going about it the wrong way and, and seeing what you do would be helpful. Um, yeah. You probably just think too much. You're probably too smart for it. You got to simplify things. I, I, I probably get too caught in the weeds of the theory, if anything. Um, so, so uh, you know, kind of diving in a little bit more into this particular uh, article that we're talking about today. Um, you know, if you could talk us through the process of setting up uh, this study and the methods that you used, uh, what did you learn from a methodological perspective that you're carrying with you moving forward? Yeah, I think so with this, as far as data collection is concerned, um, there were a few like really interesting and somewhat important things. One is, so like, at the, so the whole project, which this is not the whole project, this is really just a small piece of it. We interviewed kids twice over a year. We just finished up the second interviews. Um, and then we had them, we had the kids or we asked the kids to do like prompts through Qualtrics once a month, like with long written prompts so they could kind of tell their story along the way. And I think we realized almost halfway through, even though we did complete it, I think we realized halfway through that a lot of the kids weren't, weren't really paying too much attention to that. And so maybe that method sounds a lot better on paper than it does in actual function. Um, mm -hmm. One of the other neat things I think about these interviews in particular is that like these three doc scholars, Allie, Lindsay, and Lindsay, they dropped in. They started last fall with us or last summer, I guess. And we started interviews last fall. And so they basically dropped in and right, right yep. involved in this. And <clears throat> like for me, through my doc training, like there, that, that was never really a thing um, just because like kind of the nature of the program and where it was at when I was there. Um, but because we had hit this and we, you know, had the work to do, there was, there was this like decision for each of them, whether or not to get involved. And I'm glad each of them did because I think it, it helped the process quite a bit. Um, and it also like helped them to gain some like, you know, interviewing skills and get to answer some questions about what interviews look like and see whether or not they like qualitative methods and whatnot. Yeah, uh, and I'd actually made a note to circle back to this. Um, uh, and so this this feels like just as good of a, a place for a divergence as, as any, um, but, but um, you know, you, the, the fact that you have, you know, multiple doctoral scholars who are involved in this project, uh, it, it sounds as if it was a really great kind of introduction to the qualitative research uh, for them. Um, how, how does working with doctoral students factor into your, into your current kind of um, research portfolio uh, as, as a scholar? Because th that's a question that I continue to grapple with now too, as I work with with more doctoral students. Um, and, and I assume that, you know, even if um, other folks who listen to the podcast aren't working with doctoral students directly under their mentorship, many of us work with scholars who are at different career stages than us and some of whom might benefit from some of our mentoring. Um, and so I wonder if you could just talk through a little bit of the process of mentoring um, the doctoral scholars on a project like this. Yeah, I think just in general, like, so with doc students, and I'm sure you hear this as well, like people, people who don't work with doc students regularly, it seems make these assumptions that like, oh, you can publish a lot because you work with doc students. And they're like, they're just these machines that, that work while you're not working. So you're going to publish a ton. And 
every time I hear it, I think it's like this really adorable comment. (laughs) It's not really true. Um, Not that like, like it's not, and it's not the point that like they don't, they don't work and they're not doing great stuff. It's more so that like, that's like, I think that if I were just sitting down writing by myself, I could just keep on writing. Whereas like, there's a different process when you're working with a lot of people who are all figuring things out at the same time. Um, with that said, like I absolutely love working with doc students who are engaged and excited about writing and research. And, and part of the reason I really enjoy it is because like, I think within my own mind and my own body and the way I experience the world and what I read and what I can interpret. But when you work with doc students who are engaged and excited, they're all interpreting and they're all engaged with different material and interested in different things. And so like now I get to learn more about different stuff than I would ever learn about previously. Mm. Like we have one student, one of the two Lindsay's, Lindsay with an E is really interested in like self-efficacy of PE teachers and eventually developing interventions to try to enhance their self-efficacy. Um, and she wants to do that through social media. And like, this isn't stuff that I would typically do, right? Like if I were just sitting around, I wouldn't get involved in this type of work, but because I'm working with her and I'm like helping her kind of navigate some of the process, I get to learn all this cool stuff too. Yeah. Kind of just adds to like, you know, what, what I get to interpret and like what sifts through my thought process every day. And it's the same with each and every one of them. Everybody's got these different ideas. And so now like, I have this privilege of allowed, being allowed to learn through them all these different concepts. Like when they work on my work, it's just basically like like this part, project in particular. It was basically like added training for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Getting involved in their interests is far more interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, generally, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, one of my favorite parts about working with doctoral students is is, is a that that you kind of get to play this role in mentoring and shaping, you know, their development, but, um, you know, B, it's such a great way to stay engaged in the literature and to, to find things that, you know, I've, I've, I've researched things or been involved in researching things like assessment, for example, um, is one that I always go back to. Uh, my doctoral student at Alabama, Jenna Stark, was really interested in assessment. And we looked at the intersection between assessment and socialization. And so, you know, I brought the socialization piece. She learned about assessment. And then I walked away from that experience with her knowing a whole lot more about this area of focus within our field that that up until then I only had kind of like an arm's length understanding of, um, you know, so, so I think that that's really meaningful um, and, and, and a great way to kind of keep us up to date while we're also kind of supporting, you know, our students as they grow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much that I've learned from the current group of doc students and, you know, Nicole and Steve and Katie who have all graduated and moved on and are all doing great stuff. Um, the research that they're interested in, again, like for the most part, I probably wouldn't have pursued much of it if it weren't them pursuing. Yep. Yep. Cool. Like it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, that the way that we're talking about this, um, you know, is a really kind of supportive developmental, or at least it, it aspires to be a supportive developmental approach to doctoral education. Um, which I find, you know, not necessarily within physical education, but across science is definitely not always the expectation. I've seen, you know, a lot of doctoral programs that that really run more like workplaces. It's like you're you're walking into 
um, you know, an, an industry environment where it's almost like people are checking in and out on a time clock and expected to be there all day and they're writing and working. And, you know, there's really, inter- there's really little interaction or mentorship from the PI. Um, you know, the way that you're describing it uh, is more in line with the, the, the approach that I at least aspire to, which is taking more of kind of like an apprenticeship model or developmental lens to doctoral education. Yeah, I mean, I also like. I also don't think I have the damnedest idea what I'm doing, like, <laughs> and so, um, like, I'm happy to be told that whatever we're doing is not the way to do things. I, I think that it depends on the student, also. Like, you know, with this H grant, we we get to know nine different universities and the styles at nine different universities, and I think that. Like, I don't think any of the universities are doing things the right way or the wrong way, but we're all doing things differently also, and students experience things differently. And I think a lot of times the students are selecting the university that does things a certain way because Mm -hmm. they've learned that that's how the university does it. And so, like, we even, I even noticed that the students are quite a bit different at each school, which is quite interesting. But, I mean, are we, am I doing things right here? Are we doing things? Like, I don't know, probably Mm -hmm. not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I definitely feel like it's a process of discovery and learning and, um, you know, conversations like these, for example, are really helpful. I think that sometimes, you know, doctoral faculty or, or really just faculty members in general, and, and I think that it's part of the, 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 the part of the toxicity of academia is that we, we kind of have this idea that we're supposed to know everything and supposed to know how to do everything, when in reality, we're all just, you know, rats in a maze trying to find the cheese. Um, in a sense, maybe that's not the best analogy, but you can see where I'm going. We're trying yeah. to figure it out as we go. Um, but, but I don't know that we always, always talk about that. And so conversations like this, I think are really meaningful because I don't feel like I really know what I'm doing either. You know, I, I learned from, you know, my colleagues, Kim Graber and Amy Woods, who are here locally. I've learned from my own advisor, I've learned from my socialization and my philosophical underpinnings, but, you know, still learning and anticipate that I will for the rest of my career. Yeah, I, I think that expertiseism like that, like we need to know everything. I think that's such a plague for, yep. for ed. like, I don't know, like, I think that I try to approach everything in our field as much as I can with the I don't know what I'm doing mentality so that like you're always willing to learn and always willing to adjust. Whereas yep. I think, unfortunately, I think there's this expectation, like you're saying, that we're experts and we need to be experts. And so because of that, like, like if you think of yourself as an expert, there's no adjusting and there's no right. learning. You're, you're like a finite, already created being. Like, I don't want to be already created. I want to be like, I, so Sam, Sam Hodge at Ohio State uses the term emerging for, for new faculty, a lot, yep. like emerging scholars. And I've told them a bunch of times, I'm like, I'm not done. Like, we're just going to keep emerging until I retire. And maybe I'll retire in like two, three years. But But, well, hopefully that's not the case. I think that the field would would miss you. Um, But but your point is well taken. And I mean, that's the same way that we talk about beginning teachers, right? We talk about beginning teachers as if they, you know, are, are, are still developing, still need to engage in continuous professional learning and development. So it would make sense that as faculty, we approach our careers with that same lens. Yeah, I think so. We have to model it. If we, we, if we just think we know everything, then yeah. Yeah. So, so let's hop back into the, the, the study here real quick. Um, 
you know, how, how did this, uh, you know, coming off of this project, how, how, how has this study informed your scholarly identity or future research activities? Um, you know, in other words, what did you learn here that's influenced what's come after? Um, so it's a tough question. You know, I'm not sure how much it's influenced what's coming after because it, it is really like one of, again, like a suite from this, this band from the grant. And I think after the whole suite comes to, so we're currently like working through three other papers in different areas or not different areas that are in different stages of being formed. And probably by Christmas, we'll have all of them in some degree of like submitted or out or what have you. Um, I think a couple of lessons that were in here are that like, you know, we did those retrospective studies. We found out that, you know, unfortunately for the most part, visually impaired and blind people have have shitty PD experiences. Like that's something that we've learned over the years. I don't know if I'm allowed to say shitty on your podcast. You're absolutely allowed to say shitty. Unless Risto says, no, I don't have any control over that. Well, Risto will get used to the word shitty, I guess, in this one. But anyway, so <laughs> we've learned that over the years. And now we've learned essentially like those shitty experiences have continued, which, you know, is problematic, um, clearly. Um, in, this, in this discussion though, we did like continue to kind of press some buttons. And I, I find myself doing this a little bit, um, but this time we talked um, in the discussion a bit about perhaps the need for like our academic practice-based journals to kind of modify their behavior as far as, um, as far as what they're publishing. And so like, we're, we're thinking, like thinking about the field, we're seeing a lot of these articles coming out in like the Joe Birds and the Palestras and the strategies that say like, do X, Y, and Z, yep, yep. and kids are included, right? Um, but a lot of times those articles are very loosely based on any like actual research or data or what have you. And so one of the recommendations we made in here is for those journals to require um, authors to include either, well, maybe not either, maybe both, like a community involvement statement, which is something that the journal Autism does, uh -huh. um, I think is really valuable. Um, and a research to practice statement that basically says like, here's the research that's informing our recommendations. Um, and I think if those were included, maybe that's a step toward making yep. sure some of these recommendations actually have some sort of legs to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that translational element of journals like Jopard, I think, I think is so important. And in, and in fact, uh, yeah, in my, I don't always do this, but within my own work, I, I strive uh, for every empirical project that I do. So if we, have, if we have a project that might result in three or four publications, for example, then um, what, I, what I always strive to do is follow those empirical publications up with a Jopert article, um, or, or at times it's been a Palester article I've written there a few times in my career that, that, that talks about you know, basically putting that research into practice. And then that's cited and sourced in part from the empirical research that's preceded it. But, you know, if we don't do that translational piece, if we don't, if we don't talk about, you know, what does this mean and how do you use it? Then I think that there's a gap or we, we continue to, to widen that gap or at least leave it open from research to practice. Yeah. Well, and like, I'm happy to admit, like, I definitely live more in this, like, conceptual theoretical world most of the time and so I know a lot of the things I do um, may not resonate with practicing teachers and like I'm working on trying to figure out ways to make like some of the work that I'm doing resonate more with teachers um, yep yep like it's got to do and when I saw you up in Illinois I did some 
presentations up at Illinois AFRID last December, like using some of the quotes from some of these studies to talk to PE teachers and like kind of share that. And I'm trying to figure those things out. Um, but I think it has to come from the journal side as well, where they're yep. like requiring these things. Because like at, at the end of the day, like what's disseminated to the teachers and what are they engaging with is really important. Um, and if they keep engaging with things that really don't have any legs or weren't informed by like the voices of disabled people themselves, and it's it's kind of sending a mixed issue. We we actually myself and Anthony Marr, whose last name I say incorrectly every time, um, we have a book coming out in the fall through Rutledge that discusses this exact issue pretty in depth, where there's this disconnection between research and practice when teaching disabled people in PE. Shameless plug. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I noticed uh, a few times now, um, you've, I think, intentionally used disabled people. Um, whereas I, I can, you probably have heard me, I continue to use uh, individuals with disabilities. I had a really interesting conversation with Wes Wilson about this. Um, he wrote um, a chapter uh, in an upcoming book that, that um, I have coming out uh, that Paul Wright, Michael Hemphill, and I edited. Uh, on more shameless plugs. I love yeah, it. qualitative research methods. Yeah, exactly. More shameless plugs. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but I bring that up just because I'm 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 wondering if if in a few minutes you can talk through that that shift or what I perceive to be a shift back away from person first language towards you know placing the disability in the leading in the leading position. Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. I was just talking to Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Ball, one of the doc students who wrote this paper with us um, about this yesterday. We're having a really good conversation about language. And I think that like over time um, in adapted PE in particular in the United States, we've become very much rooted in person first language. Like yes. This is something that you know, had to do with the disability rights movement. And it's about putting the person first and like identifying the person and I think, like, for the most part, that's my understanding of where the language came from in the States and why it's still so central to how people use language. And a lot of times when faculty are teaching students about language with disabilities, that's one of the first lessons is, like, don't forget person first. Um, but I think as, as I get, as I read more and I learn more about, like, other approaches to disability and different models and understandings of what disability is, you learn that there's different languages and these languages are associated with different understandings of disability and so we'll talk about like being a so one of the one of the interesting pieces i think in the states is we talk a lot about social model of disability discord yep. like how that's how that's um, how that guides some of our behaviors however language associated with the social model is identity for or is yeah is identity first it's disability first um because people are disabled by society yes they may have impairments, right? And so like that's the basic, the very basic understanding or very basic explanation of it. And so for me personally, I've been, I've, I have a tension with my language where depending on who I'm talking to or in what context I'm talking to people, I may switch back and forth um, where I used to only use person first and now I'm actively trying to transition to identity first. Yeah. However, I find myself having that tension and like switching and thinking about language as I'm having conversations about disability. Yeah. Which is tough, but it's yeah. also I think, an important shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's about intentionality and an understanding. I think why you're using the language, the, the, the light bulb moment for me 
was when Wes explained, or I think I read it in his writing that, um, or in the writing of the co-authors on this chapter, it wasn't just Wes, but uh, the light bulb moment for me was understanding that when you put the disability first, that puts the onus for the, the, the disability on society. So society disables the individual. Whereas when you put the individual first, it's almost like attaching the disability to the individual. Um, at least that was kind of how I worked it out in my head. Sure. Yeah. And I think there's like, there are groups of disabled people who are adamant about language. Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting in the States how like deaf folk have gained, I suppose, the social capital among APA or, or special ed folk to have the ability to say we want to be called deaf folk, right? Yeah. And that's been for a long time. This isn't a new thing. And there are other groups like autistic people or perhaps blind visually visual impaired people who are more so identifying in that way. And it's more so to me a matter of and maybe this goes back to hearing voice. It's more of a matter of listening yes. than it is telling as a field. Yep. So what, what, what do people prefer? What's the language that, that different people prefer? And, and that could mean that, you know, based on what I'm hearing you say, it could mean that the language differs even based on disability categorization. And maybe right. certain groups prefer certain language and others prefer different language. And, and I agree. I think that it's about listening and honoring. Yeah. And I, and I think in... So I've also read work where people use language like person experiencing disability. So saying, not saying the person is with a disability, right? Like there's this thing that they're with, like next to, like standing by, like, like they're with another person, but more so that they're experiencing being disabled by society. Sure, sure. So that is kind of the, I think, the, um, the compromise between identity first and person first or social model and person first, where you could still say they're experiencing being disabled, but you're still putting the person first. Yep. But I also think that's also, it's, it's messy. You know? it, yep. It, it's messy and the language it, at times gets a bit cumbersome. Um, but even like putting the, the person first and not that it should be about the cumbersomeness of the language, but it, it I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to revise sentences because they just get clunky. It's like working with people with disabilities, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and not, not to say that language should be the, the or the, that the ease of language should be the leading determinant in what we use, but, um, but, yeah. but it does get a little bit messy sometimes. And, and you know, this isn't even, this isn't a new conversation. So like in, in APAC, I think it was in 2014, Danielle Pierce and Lindsay Eels, I don't know if I'm saying her name right either, and I apologize for saying it wrong, and Nancy Spencer wrote a paper all about language and language within APAC and language in APA and mm. discussed like the theoretical and philosophical rootings of language. Um, and so, you know, for people interested in that type of stuff, I would go back to that paper, and that paper uh, actually informed some new language-related policy within APAC a couple of years later. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And maybe we can um, get that paper linked in the show notes as well. Uh, if anybody would like to follow up directly there. Um, so, so in, in the little bit of time that we have left, I've just got a, a couple of questions remaining here for you. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of jumping back into the, the list that I have here, do you have any stories accompanying the process of completing this investigation that you feel comfortable sharing that kind of give us a look under the hood and, and bonus points for you, if you, if you've got anything that can make us laugh. Stories about doing the study? Yep, just the process, like stories about getting it done. 
Man, that's a good question. I don't know if I have any story. I don't even know if I remember getting this done. <laughs> Other than like, I think in the in the review process, one of the nice and interesting things was sharing the reviews with the uh, the peer reviews with the the doc students because yep. again, this was the first paper they worked on, and there was somebody who one of the reviewers had said you should said, well, this reviewer didn't really like anything that we did and basically said that a lot of things we did were were like absolutely in, inaccurate or like they clearly had gripes with a lot of the language we used, which is fine because that's what reviewers do. But they basically said to, to cut out like two paragraphs in our discussion that criticize like checking a box and observational checklists and whatnot when it comes to inclusion. And, um, and the students, you know, I think they initially thought like, oh, we're gonna just cut it out. But for me, like this, it's so important. It's such an important conversation that instead yep. of just, you know, we did the whole like write a good counter argument type deal and and it worked out and it came through. Um, yeah, fortunately, I don't think that reviewer read it again. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that process of negotiating with reviewers is always interesting though. And, you know, as, as an early career uh, scholar or, or a doctoral scholar, you know, I remember the feeling that, you know, I just have to do everything that the reviewers are asking. Otherwise, this is never going to get published. But I, I think with experience comes confidence. And, and it's, it's good, um, you know, that you were in a position to, to kind of lead those, uh, those scholars uh, through that process. Yeah, I think, but I think you're right. It's confidence is one thing, but then understanding how, like, how, like what publishing is and what having publications means and like going through the process enough to kind of know what steps are going to happen next and like what are the real possibilities to saying no to something like if mm -hmm. you say no like there are only so many things that could potentially happen and you know you just have to leverage those different things against each other to see which of those like what you're comfortable with like at, at this point man I've, i i don't know if there's anybody that's gotten rejected more than i have like i've been rejected I don't know, seven, 800 times in my career so far. And you know what? Like, bring it on. I'm ready for another one every yep. day. Just keep getting yeah. rigid. You know? Yeah. And I think that that, 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 that's a good lesson for, for anybody listening, but especially uh, early career and emerging scholars, um, you know, as Dr. Hodge would refer to them uh, be, because, you know, um, it doesn't matter what career stage you're at or, or how much experience you have or how many publications you have on your CV rejection is part of the game. Um, and you're probably going to, you're probably going to miss just as often as you hit, if not more. I, I um, like getting rejected, man, because to me, it says I'm trying to publish in journals that are competitive. Yep. If, you don't, if you never get rejected, that just means you're probably sending your stuff to journals that are less competitive than the work you're doing. Yeah. Well, and it, and it could also mean, you know, that, that you're taking risks and pushing boundaries and um, exploring new areas or exploring areas in different and somewhat controversial ways. And, you know, I think that, that fields only grow in benefit when you have that kind of discourse. Um, but, but sometimes you have to ruffle some feathers and, um, you, know, you know, provide some good rationale for, for why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think the most important thing for our field moving forward is to have more critical discourse, have yeah. more disagreements. I don't see it as much as we used to see it back in like the 90s in the APA. And I don't really see it in PE either. I don't I don't feel like we I don't know if there's a forum for us to like get into actual debates and conversations yeah. things we disagree on. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point, um, you know, and it's something that I've been thinking about recently. And I don't mean to 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 plug my own stuff again, but I think mm-hmm. I know I, I know my, yeah, shameless. I know my own things better than than anything else. Um, but but if you think back uh, to the early '90s, and this is not this is not my work, but back in the early '90s, I, in late '80s, I think in physical education, we saw some of these conversations and debates play out in journals like. RQES and like um, like Quest, there was a big conversation about the you know the merits of qualitative research in RQES back in the early '90s, late '80s. Um, that's really valuable, and and we don't do that uh, as much anymore. Um, you know, just you know, recently in physical education, one of the controversies that that we're kind of sifting through is is the place and role of social and emotional learning. Um, in, in our field, um, you know, in, in questioning, you know, should it should it be kind of centralized or should it be kind of a, a tack on or an add on? Um, and um, Hans Vandemars and Jackie Lund wrote an article that was published in Strategies where they kind of took a position that physical education needed to get back to the basics and focus more on the psychomotor domain. And then, you know, Paul Wright and I, having recently edited the book on SEL, um, uh, were, were asked to respond to that. Uh, and so we did, and uh, you know, their article came out, ours came out the next issue. And then on the PEAT collaborative, we, we invited them on to have a conversation about that um, and almost like a, a, like a semi-structured debate. And that felt like the kind of roots of, of what you're talking about. It felt like you know, there's a way that we might be able to, to do this and to model it. You know, how do you have good critical discourse for others? Yeah, I'd like to see it, I, but I want to see it and I, and I know podcasts are like the new, the new um, I don't know, forum for getting information across, but I want to see it on paper. I want to see yep. it in GPE and in APAC and in Quest and in RQ and all the other PE journals. Like I want to see it in SES and EPER and PSP. Like this is where I want to see the arguments. There's, there's one that's going to be coming out in Quest fairly soon. That's a good one, a good conversation back and forth with a couple of authors from different mm-hmm. perspectives. But but for me, like this is how this tension and this friction is what's going to make us, that's what's going to make us grow and make ideas more interesting rather than like, oh, we're doing this wonderful thing. Oh, they're so wonderful. Let's talk about how wonderful everybody is. They're wonderful. He's wonderful. She's wonderful. Everybody's wonderful. Like, no, I think we need to have actual conversations. Yeah. Well, and I think that you can do that. At least this is, maybe you'll disagree with me a little bit here. Um, but but I feel like you can do that in a civil way that 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 focuses on the issues and not the people. So we can have these conversations about these critical issues, and we might disagree. But that doesn't mean that I don't like you, and that doesn't mean that we can't go and have a, a beer together when the conference is over. Um, but we can debate ideas. Right? Why would I disagree with that? You think I want to attack? people. <laughs> no, no, I stumbled over that a little bit because I didn't, you know, I, to quote from Michael Scott on the office, sometimes I start a sentence and don't exactly know where I'm going to finish it. So I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll provide unnecessary preface, preface at the beginning, just in case it goes off the rails. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, I think so. it's got to be civil and respectful. Like, you, you know, if somebody's, but, but the thing to me is, like put it on paper. Like if, if I'm saying something on paper and like, I've definitely said things that people have come up to me in private and said, like, I disagree with what you're saying. That's great. But put it on paper because yep. like you might disagree and you might tell your friends you disagree. You might call me a schmuck or something like that. That's fine. I can be a schmuck. 
But if you put it on paper, then other people could learn about tension and learn about the conversation. And in the 10 years, when people are talking about the topic, they can read all of the conversation, not just one side. This is to me, like I think back to the the Butterfield and Decker conversations about LRE that were in APAC yeah. 20, 30 years ago. And like still today, like people will talk about those papers in classes. It seems very simple to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really good point. Um, so, so we're just about out of time here, uh, but, but I appreciate you engaging. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, before we hop off, um, and because we're trying to get to know the stories behind the research, I find it fun to end with some rapid fire style questions to help us get to know you a little bit better. So okay. if it's okay with you, I've got six categories. Are you comfortable with me giving, are you comfortable giving me your quickest responses? What's the worst that could happen? Well, so, so far it's been nothing but fun. Um, so uh, I, I hopefully nothing bad does happen. Uh, so six categories. Um, the first one, your favorite color. Uh, pink. Pink. I love that. I'm a, I'm a red guy myself, but we can get to pink through red. Girl dad, man. It's always pink. <laughs> uh, girl. Uh, do you have girls? Do. Yeah. Do. I don't know if I knew that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. They're always right here. Oh, I've never, no, that's showing, uh, uh, the listeners can't see that, but that's showing me a different side of Justin Hagel, which is why we, uh, which is why we do these questions. So appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. Um, favorite animal? Uh, the jaguar cheetah tiger line. <laughs> Explain. That is a fictitious animal that uh, we've used in a bunch of different camps for kids that we've directed over the years. I love that. That might be my new favorite. So up until that, Michael Hemphill had it with duck, um, just because that just seems like the, the least likely favorite animal. And he said it with such conviction and passion. But but that is uh, you said jaguar, cheetah, panther, lion. No panther. Jaguar, cheetah, tiger, lion. Jaguar, cheetah, tiger, lion. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, favorite season of the year. Uh, winter. Winter. Okay. Uh, maybe not what most people would say, but I'm, I'm on board with you there. Actually. A lot of people want to live down in the Southern part of the country where it's warm. I like the cold. People are crazy. I want the snow. <laughs> I love the snow. Um, favorite place on earth. Favorite place on earth that I've been to probably. Right. Um, no qualifier. Uh, I mean, I, I gotta say like the Anchorage area in Alaska, cause I've been up there so much and like, I've got so many very fond memories up there. And we, we've talked about some of your fishing exploits up there, I think. Yeah, good fishing up there, but also like just good, like the people I met all those years up there, like some of the best people I've ever come, come across. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, two more. Uh, favorite food? Uh, probably chicken wings or buffalo wings as non-Western New York people would call them. <laughs> Um, I was, uh, I, I, I had a stopover in, in, in Niagara, you know, like right outside of Buffalo. Um, and I did not get authentic, uh, Buffalo chicken wings. Um, why'd you even go up there? What's the point of being there? It's, you go to a Bills game? It's, it's, I didn't, I didn't, but I'll tell you what, but anytime you want to go to a Bills game, I'll rock Bills mafia with you anytime. All right. Keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, last but not least favorite thing to drink uh probably coffee since it's you know we're, we're at like a 10 to 12 cup a day rate so oh yeah i don't know if it's my favorite thing but i need it so i might as well call it my favorite 
I'm like that with Diet Coke, I think. Um, I don't know if I'm quite at 10 to 12 cups a day, but back in grad school, I was at two two liter bottles a day and I've, I've cut back a bit. I oh. hope you've cut back. That's a lot. I it mean, was bad. That makes me seem, you know, funny story though. The, I bought a, a coffee maker at a thrift store in Columbus, Ohio. When I was there, it was like $4. Yeah. And I was recently talking to... Um, talking to the doc students that are in the office that that uh, I was in still there still using it <laughs> love that love that um all right man well uh hey uh thank you so much for joining me on this segment of uh, going behind the research um as always thanks to Risto Martin for giving uh, us the opportunity to to include this as part of the the playing with research and health and physical education podcast um the link to justin's uh article uh is in the show notes from today's episode uh and, and justin thank you again so much for joining us it's my pleasure thanks for the invite uh thanks for the co-authors on the paper and yeah thanks to risto too for letting me say words like shitty and schmuck on his <laughs> well there you have it <laughs>If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.